come to you uh, as you're revealed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and who is revealed there in the scriptures, the word. Uh, give us life according to your promise. Give us your mercy. Give life according to your rules. And give life according to your steadfast love, your grace. For the sum of your word is truth. True truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So we come now to this eternal word and seek uh, your blessing on our hearing and understanding. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, again, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We uh, work our way slowly, no, moderately, through the letter of Hebrews. Our theme today would be something kind of like navigating the storms. The, this little church, the Hebrew church, has been persecuted and is facing another round of persecution, it would seem. Uh, mild at this point, but intensifying. Uh, they have not yet suffered to the shedding of blood, but they have at times past lost property, uh, been imprisoned, and so forth. Uh, it's caused some of the members to uh, recoil, to become inhibited in living the Christian life, uh, and even perhaps to go back to some of the old ways of worship, particularly going back to their Judaism and worshiping in the temple and offering those sacrifices. And so Hebrews goes through saying there is but one sacrifice that matters. It's the sacrifice of the, the Lamb of God, that is the Son eternal, our Lord Jesus Christ. He died once and for all time. And that sacrifice is enough, thus ending the whole temple service and its sacrificial system. Don't go back. By going back to that form of worship, you're denying the completed work of Jesus Christ. That's a serious charge, but here is a storm-tossed church. And um, indeed, they're... They're wondering, what, what do we do? How do we proceed? How do we move along? Well, their vision through this has been Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1 and Hebrews 12 and verse 3. Fix our thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Look to Jesus. I think that should say chapter 12 and verse 3. But, yeah, no, it's verse 2. Verse 3 says, consider him who endured sinners. That's a good word, too. Consider him. That, that is, that is our, our vision. And after the, the great theological treatises, it's, I was visiting um, one of our brothers yesterday, actually, and we, we read through Hebrews 12 and 13, and we realized you really can't separate the doctrinal teaching from the applicational teaching. It, they're interwoven together, and these chapters significantly do that. But in general, we're moving now to how do we live out the doctrine? And so uh, we have this vision of Christ in the, the early part of chapter 12. We move on to the, our vocation as sons. We're called to be sons. And remember, sons is a, a general term to refer to us as children of God. 
verses 14 to, to 29 talked about our values. What is it that we value when we gather together? And then chapter 13, we labeled under our ventures. We talked briefly about what it is we do. We talked about these uh, four ships that are set a-sailing within the storm uh, of life and the storm of the Christian life. And you're wondering, uh, okay, we have these four ships a-sailing, um, not quite like the Christmas song. I saw four ships a-sailing. Uh, we've got fellowship, we've got stewardship, leadership, and worship. And you're wondering, well, I was talking with another brother this week, well, you forgot one. Discipleship. Okay, yes, there is. And I'm, I'm still working through. Perhaps in this context uh, of Hebrews, uh, we, might consider, we might consider discipleship as the flagship. Discipleship is the, the big umbrella under which these four sail. In fact, in this setting of Hebrews 12 and 13, these four are what make up discipleship. This is what discipleship looks like. This is what we do as a body gathered together to make disciples. Involves these things. Uh, that will be um, all refined, I suppose, depending on the actual context in which uh, we find the term in the New Testament. But I'm trying to make it work. All right, so we, we covered briefly the first two, fellowship and stewardship. And again, within our context, uh, Hebrews talks about stewardship in relationship to our monetary things, our possessions, giving up of our property and the sharing and giving of things. But I think it's, it's worth footnoting here that stewardship is much broader than money. And stewardship is about the whole of the creation mandate. Uh, God created the garden and he placed uh, Adam and Eve, mankind, in the center of the garden and, and to take the garden and expand the garden over the face of the earth. The rest of the earth was wilderness and his mandate given to Adam is to expand the garden. That's stewardship. So any aspect of whether it's uh, treasure or time or talent is involved in stewardship. So even whether you come out to the workday on Saturday is an indication of where you're having to put your, your value in time and stewardship. Uh, whether you come on a Lord's Day and so forth, also use of time, but it works through the whole of life. And yes, uh, stewardship involves economics, but also involves ecology and environment and all of the things of creation, our homes. I find it a challenge. You know, the Bible does say, Six days you will labor, and then you'll rest. I know there's a context in Exodus 20. Um, work, 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 you work every day. You know, and then when you're not doing you know, work, work, you're doing homework, housework. There's a lot of work to do. How do we manage and steward our time? It's important. Well, that is indeed a topic for another passage. This passage now goes on to talk about leadership, and I would add to it followership, leadership and followership. Uh, th this section is actually addressed to the followers, the flock, the sheep. It mentions the leaders, uh, verses 7, uh, and then down into uh, 
17 to 19. Leadership. Here we have um, a different term. You know, often we think of elders or pastors. Or we might think of overseers or bishops. Uh, it can be the term presbyteros or the term episcopoi. Um, here, it's an entirely different term for leader. But it seems that their role and purpose is the same. And we're going to walk through these verses, and if this, is, if this is one of the ships, then there's eight sails on this ship, right? It means we're going to have to sail swiftly. The first is, as followers, what are, we, what are we to pay attention to? What are we to consider? What are we to remember about them? Verse 7 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God the way they speak and what they speak about. The only way that we can grow significantly in the Christian life is in relationship and proportion to the effect of the Word of God upon us. The Word of God is the food. That's the green pasture in which we find nourishment and are able to grow. It's into the green pastures of the Word that the Good Shepherd leads us. When Peter was charged, challenged uh, by Jesus Christ, um, just before he ascended into heaven, shortly before, he said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. That's the primary task of the church leader, is to feed and to feed good. And this is a theme throughout Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, this salvation was first declared by the Lord and then attested to us by those who heard. So the Hebrew church is, is a recipient of the message from the apostles who saw the Lord, heard the Lord with their own ears. Chapter 4, of course, in verse 11 and 12, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, exposing us, filleting us open before God, making us sacrifices unto Him. The Word. And then Hebrews chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, those who are unskilled in the Word of righteousness are stuck drinking milk. Unskilled in this word of righteousness. But those who are skilled in the word of righteousness, the verse would go on to say, this solid food. Solid food is for the mature. Now, our, our task is to get beyond simply sucking the bottle and to go on to maturity and chew on the hefty things, the meaty things of Christ and of his word. So the church uh, is described. Uh, uh, so today is Ascension Sunday. Thursday was Ascension Day, 10 days before Pentecost, which would be next Sunday. The Lord was caught up back into the air and seated at the right hand of the Father on Thursday. You know, 2,000 years before, but you get the idea, right? 
10 days before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So then the Holy Spirit will be poured out, and one of the characteristics and traits of a Spirit-filled church in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's exactly what is in reference here in verse 7. I'm sorry, um, I'm lost. Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God, who spoke the word. So if this is a trait and characteristic of a church, and this is what we do when we come together, this then is a qualification trait for our leadership particularly the eldership. And I think in this setting in Hebrews, this word is a synonym for eldership. And it is, it is to, to be able to teach. Our elders need to be able to teach. Paul writes to the church. He writes to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, he says, An overseer must be above reproach, a one-woman man, Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Able to teach. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they stand up in front of a couple hundred people in order to do that. They may be able to teach one-on-one -on -one or in a triad and so forth, but they must be able to teach. Acts chapter 6, verses 2 to 5, as, a, as the fledgling church birthed and baptized by the Holy Spirit is growing. There are some growing pains, and it's enlarged so much within the city of Jerusalem with, with pods all throughout the city. But as the Jewish women have a kind of a built-in uh, network of family and tradition, and they're cared for. They're getting their food allotments. But the Gentile, the, the non-Jewish widows, are being missed out. They don't have quite the same family network. They don't have the same cultural tradition of caring for one another, but the church is supposed to be doing that. And the apostles have gotten so, so full in their ministry and life that they're caring much for the food allotments to the danger of neglecting the ministry of the word and prayer. And so we come to Acts chapter 6, then uh, their, their suggestion, their recommendation Spirit-led recommendation is to select deacons. So Acts chapter 6, verse 2, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. So here we have a congregational gathering, the gathering of all the disciples uh, brought together by the, the lead of the apostles. And they say, we're having a hard time keeping up with the ministry of word and prayer. We really need some administrators as they come alongside the ministry that are able to help with the food distribution in particular, the care of the congregation the physical, material aspects of care to the congregation. And so visitation and so forth was to be by these seven delegates, and uh, not by them only, but there's several thousand people in the church in Jerusalem. So seven men aren't going to be able to get all, to all thousands 
Those seven administrators, those who come alongside the ministry, are then to put in structures to enable that people are cared for. And that is a primary role of the diaconate so that the elders can be devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word. So as followers, we're admonished by the leader here in Hebrews, remember your leaders and pay attention to what they teach, to what they have shared with you of Christ. What goes on in verse 7 as well, uh, to pay attention to the life they live. Consider the outcome of the way of their life. Consider the outcome. Their lives not only proclaim the gospel, but their lives display the gospel. The way they conduct themselves in home and family, uh, in business meetings and gatherings and worship are examples of gospel. How they interact in, in business situations with, within the community, within the neighborhood. They are to model, indeed, the very faith that they proclaim. So it says, remember them, consider them, imitate them, follow their example. As, as disciples, it is incumbent upon us individually to watch, to pay attention, to make notes, and say, hmm, I wonder why he did it that way. Why did he say it that way? And sometimes were too extemporaneous, you may have to come and say, why did you say it that way? And I'll have to say, hmm, why did I say it that way? There's this mutual encouragement, iron sharpening iron. But it is incumbent upon us as individuals to watch and listen, take note, and then how do I go forward? What do I do different based on this? Now, now, There is an importance and a benefit then to church history. Right, Dr. Wright? There is an importance and benefit to church history and Christian biography. We, we need to know what our forebears have lived, how they fought the faith, how they kept the faith, how they survived, how they died. And church history and Christian biography is helpful for us in that regard. So as we come into the summer season and you're trying to decide, well, what should I read this summer while I'm laying around on the beach? Well, pick up a Christian biography. Uh, I like the kind that put several together. So some of those books, you know, like Eric Metaxas, he has several books, uh, Seven Men, Seven Women, you know, of the Christian faith. Those are helpful, you know, summaries of, life. Of course, he has a really big, thick one on a couple other people, you know. Um, there's another series called, um, what is it called? I should have brought one in with me. Something about the Swans series by John Piper. And each, each slender volume has several biographies within it. Just a helpful little, little way to read and learn and grow. One of, my, one of the fellows that I remember significantly reading um, in that little slender volume by Piper was Charles Simeon, a preacher in England, and he preached decades in a church. And 
for the most of that time. The congregation didn't like him preaching the gospel, and so they locked the pews so no one could sit in them. You thought, you know, the whole thing over chairs and pews was a struggle. They had them locked, and the, the membership would lock their pews. And so when Charles was preaching, they wouldn't come. They boycotted his service, and they hired their own preacher for the afternoon service. And they'd come, and they'd unlock the pews and sit there. But those who came to hear Charles, Simeon, had to stand in the aisleways and through the windows listen to him. And he persevered, he stayed, remained there. Can you imagine? He remained there. Faithful to the word. The life they live. The life they live. Verse 7 goes on to talk about um, the faithfulness that they manifest. Yes, remember those who spoke the word to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Here's our mimic word here all again. Imitate their faith, the way they believed and the way they lived. Not only watch and consider, but then live the same way. Again, it's incumbent upon us to be able to make the application. We watch, we observe, we hear, we listen, and then the Holy Spirit leads us as to how to live. Live faithfully and live according to the faith. Well, Hebrews warned us about this previous. Chapter 6 and verse 12. Do not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and, parent, par faith and patience inherit the promises. Don't be sluggish, but imitate the faith of those who inherit the promises. Right. watch, consider, apply the faith that they manifest. Verse 8 rounds out this, this paragraph. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes, we watch them, we observe them, we imitate them, but they won't be here forever. And when they are gone, perhaps all we'll have is a biography. What we do have always is the presence, the personal presence of Jesus Christ as he ascended on high and sent the Holy Spirit to indwell the church. We have the presence of the Spirit of Christ. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always been faithful. What he's accomplished yesterday in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension is now to be applied today and tomorrow. Ultimately, Jesus is our model of faithfulness. This is why we say fix our thoughts on Jesus, fix our eyes on Jesus. He is our ultimate model. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. These leaders won't always be with us, but he is our high priest. Kent Hughes put it this way, our priest is eternally the same and eternally contemporary. Yes, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's eternally contemporary. He's always timely. He's always appropriate. He is always, shall we say, for the Christian, in style. You can trust him today and tomorrow, even as you trusted him yesterday. And he's always come through, 
Oh, I know, not exactly the way you thought or anticipated. But he's always and ever faithful. So consider the Lord that our leaders follow. Well, the section 9 and following, 9 to 16, we'll, we'll mark as worship. And we'll come to that. But let's skip ahead to verse 17 and continue this theme of leadership and followership. Verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Mm. Consider the obedience that they invite. Now, this is in contrast, which we did kind of pass over, to verse 9. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. Don't be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. Listen to your elders. Obey them. Hear what they teach. Hear what they have to say. And submit your life to it. Don't be caught up in strange and diverse things, but with the truth, the truth of Christ. Now, they, they are charged, as we'll find out, to keep watch over our souls. And in verse 20, we're going to have find reference to the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ, and they his under-shepherds. As they follow Christ, again, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, our ultimate model, so we follow them. This, this submission and this obedience is not unqualified, and it's not absolute. It's to the extent that they obey and submit to Christ themselves. It's not abusive. It's not authoritarian. It's not autocratic. In fact, the, the word for obedience here has with it the aspect of persuasion. In fact, the word leadership uh, that's used here has with it the sense of bring with, to lead or to carry or to bring. So you might think of leadership as bringership. We're bringing, they're bringing us along. Leaders don't get too far ahead. They don't lollygate too far behind. But they bring us all along. And so we can yield to them. And if we don't, we're not going to sail well. Submission, then, is also this yielding to their attempts at persuasion. They're actually inviting us to be in the Word, inviting us to hear the testimony of Christ, inviting us to live like Christ. But, of course, this is nothing that's contrary to the Bible's teaching. Verse 9, strange and diverse teachings. Avoid. They invite us along the way of discipleship to become changed, to become more like Christ. Well, they will give an accounting. Verse 17 goes on. 
they keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So here there is a motivation for the leaders and a motivation for the flock. Motivation for leaders, they will be judged by a higher standard. There, there is a double standard for leadership. Now, in a sense, we all have the same standard of Christian living, but the double standard is that the leader is actually supposed to live it. Now, we all are supposed to, but you can't be a leader if you're not. And James chapter 3, 1 helps us a bit understand this. James chapter 3, 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That is an ominous weight. To be, it, it, I mean, it's, it's fearful enough to be judged by you. But to be, to be judged by God in terms of faithfulness to his own word. Well, our leaders, our Bible teachers, our Sunday school teachers, our Bible study leaders, our elders are under this wait. And that's a motivation then for we who follow uh, to obey and yield to what they teach us. Now there's a motivation for the flock. The elders must give an account. Yes, they will be judged with a higher standard, but uh, they, will be, they will also give an account of how well you followed. Here's what, here's what Bob Gundry describes it this way. The leaders labor under the recognition that at the last judgment they will have to tell how well or badly their congregations obeyed and submitted. Wow. I'll stand before the Lord and, and share with him, okay, here's the replay of Grace Bible Church at least for the 20 years that I was there, how well did you follow? And I'll have to report to God not only how I did, how you did. That's how Robert Gundry understands this. These leaders want to stand before God Avoid having to give God an account that would disadvantage you, that would put a blemish upon the record. Now, yes, believers will be judged. We're not judged for sin, no. Salvation is a free gift of God, Romans 8, 1, and Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. But our, our, the way we live the Christian life, our manner of conduct, the way we manifest faith, will we'll be judged. Uh, consider 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is Paul writing to the believers, to the church. He writes to the Romans, Romans chapter 14, verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. 
were we increasingly conformed to the image of Christ? Of course, there's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15 that talk about the wood, hay, stubble and the, the purging and the purifying of our Christian character and life in eternity. The strife um, that might be within a church through the lack of obedience and the lack of submission not only impedes you personally, it impedes the congregation wholly. We all then are impeded in our spiritual growth. So we want to be eager to obey and submit to our leadership who bring the word to us. Kent Hughes puts it this way, he says, such churches will sail well. All hands will be coordinated on deck to point the church in a single direction. Well, 17 goes on. You speak of their joy. Obey your leaders. Submit to them. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Leadership is burdensome and heartbreaking. It ought not to be groaning, but it is. I mean, consider Moses. You know, there he is, um, there he is in the wilderness in Exodus 17, and the people are grumbling at Moses and at the Lord. And 40 years later, guess what happens in Numbers chapter 20? Same thing. First time in Rephidim, the second time in Kadesh. And the people are grumbling. And the second time, now after 40 years of this, Moses then loses it. Moses is told to speak to the rock and water will come forth. And Moses takes a staff and he smacks the rock. And the Lord says, Moses, you didn't honor me. You're not going into the promised land. You're not entering into the land of rest. That's not a judgment on his salvation. But the way he lived out his faith, because of the grumbling of the congregation, still he's responsible. Now, our work as followers is to make it joyful. The joy of, of a following flock. Now, it, is, it isn't always easy. And here's another preacher his name is Phillips Brooks. Puts it quite poignantly. It says, to be a true minister to men is always to accept new happiness and new distress. The man who gives himself to other men can never be a wholly sad man, but no more can he be a man of unclouded gladness. To him shall come with every deeper consecration a before untasted joy. But in the same cup shall be mixed a sorrow that it was beyond his power to feel before. A.W. Tozer would comment, it is doubtful that God will use a man greatly until he has hurt a man deeply. I don't really like that. <laughs> and I don't do it well. But it's true. 
To be honest, I don't know that, that the seminaries and the colleges prepare us well for this kind of ministry, this biblical ministry. We're perhaps not purposefully, at least not in my tenure, but we're not, we're, we're more trained for the American way than the biblical way of success. Now, our joy, though, is to be the joy of a following flock. Here's how John puts it in 3 John, verse 4. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. There's no greater joy for the elder of the church than to know that the flock is walking in the truth of Christ. Paul, similarly, in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, My brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Yes, the joy of a following flock. Well, verses 18 to 19 round out this leadership, followership dynamic. Pray for us. We're sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. But I urge you the more earnestly to do this that I might be restored to you the sooner. Here, the author identifies himself personally for the first time. And he identifies himself personally with this characteristic of leadership. And he says, pray for us. And we don't know exactly what he means by be restored all the sooner. Apparently, he's at least uh, prohibited in some way from getting where he needs to be and to be with them, his presence to encourage and strengthen them. But he says, pray. Pray for us, and by extension, pray for our leaders. Persecution, when it comes, is going to fall harder on the leadership, at least initially. Pray for them. Pray that they have a clear conscience in their ministry, is how he writes, that they would discharge the duties of their ministry honorably. And pray that the word would spread forth through them. Pray for power in their teaching and in their preaching. Uh, in 1855, just a couple days ago, May 27th, 1855, Charles Spurgeon preached this. My people, shall I ever lose your prayers? Will ye ever cease your supplications? Will ye then ever cease to pray? I fear ye have not uttered so many prayers this morning as ye should have done. I fear there has not been so much earnest devotion as might have been poured forth. For my own part, I have not felt the wondrous power I sometimes experience. Wow. Prayer and power. Uh, Peter Dynica, uh, founder of Slavic Gospel Association, wrote uh, a book uh, and the phrase with it, much prayer, much power. We don't pray in order to get the power, and it's not manipulative, but it is the fruit of our prayers. And perhaps we have not because we ask not. But if the flock prays for the leaders, and you do, I hear that weekly, 
That is W-E-E-K-L-Y. If the flock prays for our leaders, what would the church be like? How different would it be? Maybe, maybe the business-as-usual worship and the mundane day-to-day shuffling of things around supernaturally would cease. Right? The Holy Spirit would just stop all that business-as-usual kind of stuff. Maybe there would be outpourings of the Holy Spirit. Oh, yes, We'll, we'll celebrate next Sunday the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the once and for all time, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, baptism of the church, the birthday of the church. But we're to go on being filled. And the admonition to being filled is, is plural. You all be filled with the Spirit. Perhaps the appeals for volunteers and the leadership vacuums would evaporate but even more glorious to see men and women and boys and girls come to know Jesus as their Savior and growing in His grace. We must needs pray that way. Father, indeed take these uh, observations of our church life and dynamic together Uh, emblazon them upon our minds and our hearts knowing that these will only become our actions and our values as our eyes are fixated on Jesus and our minds are ruminating on him and so we be conformed to him oh one degree of glory to another but so be it We ask, Lord, indeed, for our church to know this dynamic of fellowship and stewardship, leadership and worship. May we follow our leaders as they follow Christ. And, O Lord, would you bless the work? Would you bring a fruitfulness that we cannot account for as our teachers teach the Bible to children, to five-day clubs, even as we share a cup of cold water on the 4th of July in the heat of the parade, may we have opportunity to share of the water of life, our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we go about caring and loving for one another. There are so many of our fold that are hurting physically and emotionally. Some we can see uh, externally and others, these hurts are internal. Oh Lord, would we comfort and encourage them as you enable us under our diaconate. We do indeed think of our brothers and sisters this morning that are in hurt. Bless and keep them, Father. We pray your blessing upon Ben and Aaliyah. 
on Nolan and Amelia as they share in, in marriage. Bless, indeed, their futures. We praise you for a new life, uh, for Sansa Elizabeth Wilde Forst Foster, baby granddaughter to Sterling and Donna. Uh, 